if you do what's necessary to keep the individual healthy, their cells are healthy as a byproduct. Does the same thing work at the population level? Namely, get all the population factors right, then what the individuals do or don't do doesn't matter. That's the best way that I can explain why the longest lived country in the world has the most smokers, men smoking among the rich countries. Welcome, friends, to the podcast for Healing Neurology, where we talk about everything that can help heal your neurology, which is really everything. Food, lifestyle, mental health patterns, thinking and feeling, the environment in which you live and work, medical treatments, pharmaceuticals, nature, culture, politics, and policy, I'll add today because of today's conversation. There's no topic too big or too small. I'm Jillian Ehrlich, a family nurse practitioner certified in Ayurveda and functional medicine, and I'm here with Dr. Steven Bizruchka. He has worked as an emergency room physician in the U.S. for over three decades and spent 10 years in Nepal. There, he started a community health project a week's walk from the road and set up a remote district hospital as a teaching hospital for Nepali doctors whose training he supervised. Dr. Bizruchka considers how nations and parts of the world attain their health and mortality status. Even though health in the U.S. is now declining absolutely, despite having been one of the healthiest nations 70 years ago, no attention is being paid to consider upstream causes, which are mostly economic and political. He teaches, writes, and talks about population health issues and works to further a broader understanding of determinants of health. His research focuses on how to best create broader awareness. And his activist efforts include co-chairing the Economic Inequality Health Task Force of the Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility, where he is also a member of the Board of Directors. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you very much for having me, Julian. It's a real pleasure. I always enjoy conversations with you. <laughs> well, let's get started. Yes. So you have come a long way from being an emergency room doctor to being a public health renegade. How'd that happen? How did that happen? Well, in the 1980s, I began to see data that U.S. health measured by life expectancy or infant mortality was falling behind other countries, and I didn't know why. Hmm. Uh, we certainly had a state-of-the-art health care system, spent a lot of money on that. Um, and so I, this is around the later 1980s, with my experience in Nepal, I came back here in 1986, and one of the ideas circulating was that uh, for the health of infants and children around the world, mother's education seemed to be more important than anything else. And I didn't quite, I, I couldn't quite put that together. Mm -hmm. What I, I was somebody who, Used, who conflated the ideas of health and healthcare. I thought it was healthcare that produced health. Ah. I thought that, just, well, I, I can't say I thought that, but I had never questioned that. It was subliminal. So um, I led some study tours to Nepal for doctors and medical students here. And, um, and I worked with a Nepali uh, counterpart, Shankar Manrai, we were sitting on a rice paddy uh, in uh, in the eastern part of the country, 
and having one of these seminars that I sort of uh, led on global health, wasn't called global health then. And Shankar asked me, why, why do Bangladeshi men have a better chance of surviving than American, sorry, than uh, African-Americans in Harlem? That's a good question. And I hadn't heard of that. As a matter of fact, Shankar had a better grasp of the literature. He, you know, this was an article in the New England Journal of Medicine back in 1990. This was 1991 that we had this discussion. I, the fact that I couldn't answer that, and, and having and living in the United States, propelled me to say, you know, I, my understanding of health is not that good. I I understood how to provide health care, but not, but I couldn't understand what produced health. So I went back to public health school in 1992 to uh, to Johns Hopkins, and I went there because it had uh, supposedly the best program with the greatest diversity of people from around the world. And in my application essay, I wrote. Uh, I'm trying to figure out what makes a population healthy. I know, I know it's not medical care. I've been doing that for long enough. And so I, I, I want to go and study with at Hopkins to figure this out, what makes a population healthy. So when I got there, uh, and, I, oh, and, and to understand the declining health of, compared to other countries in the United States. So I got there, and... Um, I learned two things that were really important, social factors and political factors. Nobody ever discussed the U.S. health status in other countries compared to other countries. And uh, although I never asked directly why, you know, it takes you a long time to frame the right questions. Uh, but what clearly was true was that, you know, the Whoever pays the piper calls the tune, and so funding agencies weren't asking these questions, namely, um, why is U.S. health declining compared to other countries, relative to other countries? Anyway, so I left um, not having my question answered, other than I had two new toys to play with, social factors and political factors. And I came across a study uh, linking economic inequality to life expectancy among rich countries. And I saw the graph and I thought, you know, there's something that really makes sense here. So I began delving into that. Um, in 1995, I was now sure that some measures of inequality, uh, economic phenomenon, uh, were really related to the help to life expectancy as a measure of health of societies. And so um, as I learned more about it, I wanted to present this to other doctors. So in 1995, I gave my first uh, talk at a doctor's conference talking about poor U.S. health status and the links to inequality. And I thought that when people saw that our health compared to other countries was not that good, doctors, that they'd be eager to do something. It took me about five years to disabuse myself of that. Namely, doctors aren't interested in health. Our job is to diagnose and treat. 
producing health is much more complex. You know, you've got uh, uh, you've got a headache, so I can give you some medicine for the headache. I can make sure it's not a uh, intracerebral hemorrhage, that sort of thing. So I can treat an individual, and uh, that has very little to do with the with what produces health in a society. Now, it took me a long time to be able to clarify these ideas. Uh, but around 2000, I came to see that I had to look elsewhere if I'm going to interest people in um, health rather than health care. If I'm going to get doctors to, if I'm going to get people to consider health rather than health care, you know, I'd ask some of my colleagues, you know, why is this going on? And they say, well, you know, we, nobody ever taught us about this stuff. So if you're not taught about it, you're not going to take an interest in it. Anyway, so I started teaching about, uh, at, the, at the University of Washington. My first course, I think, was 2001, a graduate course, uh, then an undergraduate course in 2002. And I sort of refined the idea of looking at the country as a patient, as the patient. Mm -hmm. So I'm obsessed with trying to understand how different countries achieve their levels of health. Monday, the United Nations published its Human Development Report for 2019. And in there is Table 1, which lists every country and its life expectancy. So these are, and I coined the term Health Olympics back in about 2001. Mm -hmm. Namely, if health were an Olympic event, uh, how would the United States do? We're doing terribly. Well, I mean, this shows now among UN countries, we rank 36th in life expectancy. Our folks who are listening and who can't see this, I will post it, but um, it's out of 36. We're the losers. And actually, <laughs> it's lower than that because Taiwan is not a UN country and it's healthier than we oh, are. Oh, yeah. So we're just behind Barbados. I don't, what is that country? Uh, Czech Republic. Oh, Czech that's Czechia. Is that yeah. Czech Republic? Yeah. Czech Republic, Chile, Costa Rica, Qatar, uh, way leading, and Switzerland, Singapore, and Spain are next, and Italy and Austria. Australia, sorry. And then Iceland and Israel. Fascinating. Okay, so we're doing, so, and so, and you saw this decline starting in the 90s. No, the decline... Okay, I, I was aware of the decline in the 50s. We were up here. Yeah. These numbers were lower. Yeah. Life expectancy keeps increasing. Uh, but uh, other countries are seeing faster or bigger health improvements than we are. Okay. We're, so we're Until recently there. when our numbers began going down. Okay. So since 2014, life expectancy in the United States has declined. And if we had have continued to increase, as our trajectory had showed, we're now about a year behind where we might have been. Okay. Well, what does that translate into? You know, you <clears throat> clinical people are used to vital signs of an individual. You know, your temperature, blood pressure, uh, pulse, and oxygen saturation, those things. Um, 
And you know that a small difference, say if you had a, a child with a temperature of 41 or 2, because we're four and a half years, five years behind the longest lift. Suppose you had a child with a temperature of uh, 4 degrees above 37, let's use Celsius, 40 so that would be like degrees. 103 or 104. Uh, five or so, 105 or so. Okay. You'd be cooling that child real quick because mm -hmm. brains don't do very well mm -hmm. at high temperatures. And you get febrile seizures, among other things. So we're four and a half years behind Japan, roughly. What does that translate into? What's our leading cause of death in this country? Mm, is it heart disease? Yeah, heart disease. Mm -hmm. If present trends continue, it'll kill roughly half of us mm -hmm. in half of the adults in this country. Suppose we eradicated heart disease as a cause of death. Mm -hmm. Just gone. Kept the other disease death rates the same. We would gain about three and a half years of life expectancy. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't that be the we wouldn't be the gold medalist in the Health Olympics, but we'd be close. Mm -hmm. So that's so where we are now is represents uh, more than eradicating our leading disease killer behind the longest lived country. That should be a cause for concern. Mm -hmm. To achieve this, we spend more on health care than the rest of the world combined. Mm -hmm. uh, it's about $3.6 trillion. It represents a sixth of our economy, about 18 percent of, uh, of GDP, uh, and it will guarantee paid employment for us, but it doesn't guarantee health. Yes. So... What do we do? What? So, and... <laughs> so, and, and that's a wrap. No. There's... So there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of ways to unpeel this, and... Um, one of the reasons that I've been calling you a public health renegade is because I think you're asking more difficult questions. I think the questions that we typically ask about this, looking at statistics like these are, well, how do we improve our public health outreach or how do we improve our public health delivery or, um, but that's, that's not, I don't think that's really. The real question is what is public health in this country? What is public health in this country? Well, it's a circumscribed set of interventions. Mm-hmm immunizations, uh, stop smoking messages, uh, services for the poor people who can't otherwise access them, and, and so on. And early detection, which we call Screening. prevention, but yeah, a lot of well, it is yeah. early detection for breast cancer, colon cancer, so for a few cancers. So it's a circumscribed set of interventions, but it doesn't address the key factors that produce health in a society. So uh, our healthiest state, our longest-lived state, is Hawaii. Mm -hmm. Hawaii uh, produced a, uh, a, a depart the Department of Health in Hawaii produced a report on the social determinants of health and chronic disease. And this is the graphic on page two. And to describe it, uh, basically we have upstream or root causes of, of health and then the downstream effects on health. And it's got basically a... A, a mountain range, a pass in the mountain range, and then uh, a waterfall, and it flows out to the ocean. And uh, the downstream effects are the chronic diseases that you treat. The risk factors are the stuff we tell you to, you know, be active and stop smoking and uh, and don't get too big, and access to health care. So these are the downstream 
effect from the society as the Department of Health in Hawaii might consider. I mean, it is, you know, it is our, arguably our healthiest state, so it knows something. Mm-hmm. And then there are all these factors by this raging waterfall, which are the traditional social determinants of health. Poverty, pollution, place, uh, racism, uh, education, income, wealth, um, and so on. What's above that? So what's above that is political context and governance and social economic conditions. So, and political context is above social uh, economic mm-hmm. conditions. Mm-hmm. And that suggests what I learned at Hopkins, the political factors are the most important. What are political factors? Uh, well, politics is the process by where we decide to uh, share what is ours and the process by which that happens. In other words, huh. as a society... Um, we have forests and a variety of environmental resources. We have the broadcast airwaves. Uh, we have rules and regulations for how business is conducted. Uh, so those need to, we, we can decide to share those in various ways. And the process is typically holding elections and having uh, elected officials accountable. Uh, take the broadcast bands, the airwaves. Uh, we gave those away to private businesses, mm-hmm. and they control the information we receive. Now we have a whole digital media that's out there for which it's a free-for-all. There's no controls on that. Mm-hmm. You can say anything you want on social media and cause a lot of uh, irate people um, and nobody's responsible for that. It's, a, it's, it's totally a jungle. So we could decide to regulate our, the media, which comes from, as you know, your computer is basically a technology that the United States government built and paid for in the 1940s. There's a big room at the Smithsonian where the ENIAC is housed, mm-hmm. this huge mm-hmm. thing that um, uh, could add a couple of numbers. I mean, <laughs> and so we, and we developed the software to run that. And then when it became profitable, we gave it to private industry to make huge profits on. Mm-hmm. And the outgrowth of that today is Apple, Google, Facebook. Mm-hmm. We also developed other technologies that produce the richest person in the world, not just a stone's throw from here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically a delivery man mm-hmm. um, who expedited delivery. Mm-hmm. So these are the political. So the political context is what's ours, and how do we decide to care for and share it, and the process by which that happens. And since we have, with most inequality of all rich countries, uh, we have the richest people, the three richest people. Uh, well. The two richest people, as I said, are a stone's throw from here. And they basically rode their backs on government-sponsored innovation. They should maybe pay a licensing fee to we the people for this, maybe. Mm -hmm. But they don't. 
So the question, and this is the this is part of the conversation that you and I had when we met by happenstance on the trail a few weeks ago, hiking in the woods um, outside of Seattle, which was, what? Why are we all? Why are we as citizens kind of all okay with this? Where does that come from? You know, we are okay with we the people are okay with a few people holding a lot of wealth. We think that, you know, we look even, you know, at a delivery man and we think maybe we'll be that delivery man. Maybe that'll be all of us. All of us have that thinking. Maybe we'll win this lotto. And why do we think that? And why are we okay with that? Why are we not interested in a politics that divides our resources for the benefit of all of us? So let's look at trends in inequality. I said inequality is the key factor here socioeconomic conditions, inequality. Mm-hmm. Um, the richest 1% in the 1920s had half of all the wealth. Wealth, we're talking about wealth. And, by, uh, and, it, and through a variety of processes, the share of the wealth whittled down in 1975 to about 23% of all wealth, mm-hmm. from half to 23. Now they're back to half. Yeah. How did they get it back? See, so if we look at the uh, at the inflection point or the nadir in 1975, um, the rich had more than ever before, but their share was less. And the rich always want only one thing throughout history. That's everything. Mm-hmm. So they pretty well got it back. I like to look at the process by which that happened. There was an article in Business Week. Remember, people used to have these weekly magazines. Mm-hmm. In October 1974, and I, I I can quote the actual text of the article. It said, "It would be a hard pill for Americans to swallow the idea of doing with less, so big business can have more." Goes on to say, "Nothing in modern economic history compares in difficulty with the sell job that must now be done to make Americans." accept the new reality. Let's decode that. Mm-hmm. Big business has to have more and we have to have less. And we be we've gotta be we've got to feel good about it. So what happened was from you know I, I came of age in the sixties, it was a uh, a time of uh, upset and opposition to the invasion of Vietnam, uh, the civil rights movement, uh, the dreams of a utopia almost around the corner. It was a social revolution, and when you're in it, it's hard to sort of know that that's what's going on. Um, so that people power had to be contained. And the container was to tell us our job is to be consumers. So we have traded working together for and such as the civil rights legislation, such as uh, taxation rates were very high back in the, starting in the 50s, you know, well, starting in the 40s, the highest marginal tax rate in the 50s was 91% on the upper chunk of income. Now it's about 38, 39%. So the rich don't want to pay taxes. They had to whittle that down and they told us in some uncertain terms, your job is, we're not going to pay you more. Your job is to borrow your salary. This is before the 
crash of 2008, you know, by uh, second mortgages on your home, by credit card debt, or your salary since we're not going to pay you more. And somehow we did that so we could buy all the stuff that we don't need to put in storage lockers. And, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's turned out to be a big industry. Um, so we were basically told that our role was to be consumers, and we had to go into debt to achieve that, and that that was what we were supposed to do. What, why did we believe that? Oh, we, well, we believed it with a vengeance. Yeah, we, why? How? How did that happen? So advertising is a, has been very, very successful. Um, basically, it's, you know, we have all these, it's advertising. It's media manipulation. It's, um, when I was a kid growing up, uh, this is, you know, I, I became fixated on one particular brand. It was a brand of gasoline. Because mm -hmm. they uh, sponsored the Hockey Night in Canada broadcast from Maple Leaf Gardens, ESSO, the Canadian equivalent of Exxon or and when I, when my father bought a car, when uh, he finally passed his driver's license, bought a car, I was 16 at the time, uh, I got my license, and I said, Dad, we got to put Esso gas in the car. And he said, no, any old, any old gas is fine. And I said, no, it's got to be Esso gas. So I went and got a job working at a grocery store to put every ounce of gas into the car. Wow. that I paid for because I had to be loyal to my brand. That's happening today much more powerfully. People have um, created generic terms for various brands. Uh, where's my North Face? Uh, and so on. You know, we, my Patagonia. Mm -hmm. um, we've been effectively sold that our identity is bound up in product. And if that's true, then your job is to consume. So it's interesting because really what marketing does is associate happiness or stability or sustainability with the brand, right? That's what, that's what we're being sold on. So what we're really being sold on is happiness. And one thing we know about human life is it ain't easy. So even if we even if we desire a return to a time, you know, this obviously will never happen, but without advertising or without marketing or you turn off the television or you turn off um, uh, whatever, wherever you get your media from, you're still not going to necessarily find happiness or peace of mind because that's not kind of our human state. Remember, the United States is founded with the Declaration of Independence on three principles, life, not necessarily a long life. Mm -hmm. Liberty, well, we house a quarter of the world's prisoners, so maybe we can contest that too. Mm -hmm. And the pursuit of happiness. Oh, not right. the attainment, it's the pursuit. That's the critical thing. We are constantly pursuing happiness. We're falling further behind. I mean, our happiness is no better than our life expectancy. And... Um, and how do we pursue happiness? By buying stuff. Yeah. 
not working. It's Happiness not comes from social relationships. It comes with friendship. It comes with family, friends, thing, doing things together. But people don't do things together anymore. You know, you find a couple sitting at a restaurant and they're texting each other. Yes. <laughs> I <laughs> just figure. heard the statistic that um, teen pregnancy is down because yeah. teens don't see each other anymore. That's they're right. Texting. Yep. The amount, yeah, uh, there's an article in The Atlantic about how we're having less sex. Yes. And there's a study comparing Australia and the United States and, on having sex, and they're still doing it in yeah. Australia. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Something to think about. Yeah. So what do we and and so what do we do about this component of it? This component. Like so, one of the conversations we started a little bit before we even started the recording was about what is public health, and what does public health do. So if we were going to make, if you were going to create a public health campaign, that was going to be truly health focused, and was going to address this type of issue, what what would it look like? Um, well, I think the word public health is uh, is outdated. Or you, we, like I, I, I tell people we have public health 1.0, 2.0. We need a public health 3.0. Uh-huh. Public health 1.0 is trying to keep the fecal matter out of the food and the water. That hygiene. would be nice. I'd hygiene. appreciate that. Yeah. yeah, that was that was in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. In the 20th century, it was all the stuff we talked about: immunization, screening. Uh, clinics for disadvantaged uh, behavioral messages and so on. 21st century public health, or 3.0, ought to recognize the political origins of our health and get us involved in understanding that. I think population... So I began using the term population health around 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. since that was a shift in terms. And I said population health is the understanding of the major factors that produce health in a population. And those are, I whittled them down my simplistic perspective to two things. One is caring and sharing as measured by economic inequality. And the other is attention to early life. That is, about half of our health as adults has been programmed most likely in the first thousand days after conception, and certainly by the time we go to school. A student of mine who gave an Ignite talk at Town Hall had this, uh, she, when she did that talk, she had this graphic to illustrate the importance of the first thousand days after conception. After, by the time you're blowing out those two candles, roughly half of our health has been determined through epigenetic mechanisms. Um, so we have to produce a caring and sharing society, mostly by decreasing inequality. And the resources we gain from that, we have to spend on early life. Mm. What would we spend it on in early life? Well, having time to parent is important. Mm-hmm. There are only two countries in the world that don't give a working woman who is pregnant and then has a baby paid time off. One is, of course, the United States, and the other is Papua New Guinea. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Only two countries with populations of a million or more who don't have paid maternity leave programs as a national policy. Yeah. Go 100 miles north to Canada, you get uh, a year at 60% pay. The pay comes from the government, 
and the employer often tops it up. Wow. Go to Sweden, you get essentially two years. The first year, what, the first 444 days at full pay, father has to take 13 weeks. Second year uh, is um, optional at 70% pay. And in the third year, you can put your three-year-old in a government, Swedish government-run daycare center that's free. It's amazing. And the requirements to work in a Swedish government-run daycare center is that you have an advanced degree in play. Wow. Because what's, <laughs> what's daycare? It's socializing the kid, the yeah. three-year-old. You yeah. need experts there. Yeah. What are our requirements for daycare? Ability to work at a minimum wage. Yeah. And no recent history of sexual abuse of children, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. So you get what you pay for. We don't spend money on early life. Uh, Sweden, for example, since I mentioned it, spends more government money on the first year of life than in any subsequent year. Because they recognize how important early life is. And we got it. That's what we got to focus on our on our programs and funding. Where do we put our money? Well, if we're going to spend it on early life, we put it in remedial actions for people that, you know, teenagers and, and people like that. So I can show you graphs of where we spend our money. Yeah. This uh, harkens back to a statement by an escaped slave abolitionist, Frederick Douglass, who said, it's easier to build strong children than repair broken men. Yes. But when the sixth of the economy is repairing broken men and women, you don't want to mess with that. Yeah. Do you know the statistics of how much we spend kind of at the end of life in the last few years of life as compared? The numbers are somewhere in the 70, 60, 70, 80 percent. Wow. Um, yeah. It's... I, we talked a little bit also before the recording started about how on when I had a baby four, five years ago now, um, as working full time and having a baby, I took my three months off and then went back to work and, um, how, you know, God bless him. I love him. He was not a great sleeper. And so for that first, probably two or three years, I was under, I was underslept and, um, that had a greater impact on my health and my life than anything else has ever had. And I have not been a terribly sick person, thank God, knock on wood. Mm -hmm. But it's it was remarkable to me about how I couldn't figure it out. I literally couldn't figure it out. And the answer is that it because it, it's because it wasn't really about me. There was nothing that I was doing that was necessarily wrong or that I could have necessarily done differently um, other than make more raise a child yes um, yeah it's a collective thing it is very much a collective so how do we restore i mean if we're so if we're going to really break it down then the conversation we're having today is how do we get public health to a restore relationships give space for citizens to restore relationships support the transition of the generations so for pregnant women and new new parents to raise children? And how do we politically share our resources in order to direct them to the places that's going to build a strong society? Well, first of all, we have to recognize or try to define the problem. Uh, and again, I think of my own personal growing up era 
1956, the Russians launched a satellite into space and totally caught us off guard. Uh-huh. And and the such as I would offer our goal now is to make the rich even more rich beyond their wildest dreams. Yes. You know, we passed a one and a half trillion dollar tax cut. That's actually an underestimate. It's going to be about four and a half trillion uh, over the next decade to make the rich richer. And they're laughing all the way to their offshore banks. Mm-hmm. Those that's sort of what we have decided as a society to to do, and our declining health shows that it's killing us. And suicides are up. Yeah. And um, suicides are up. Well, one thing we've already talked about in another podcast, if you've listened, is suicides are up for middle-aged white men and for millennials. So this is not specific to gender. This is not specific to economic uh, status. This is not specific to generation the important thing to recognize is you and I might sit here and think this bleak picture that I'm painting doesn't apply to us. You know, we um, were educated, white skin, make lots of money, practice all the right uh, behaviors. So that applies to them, not to us. Mm-hmm. The hardest thing to get my students to recognize is that that's not true. How can I present that? Well, I can a book off the shelf. I will actually read the title. U.S. Health in International Perspective, Shorter Lives, Poorer Health. Who produced it? The National Research Council and Institute of Medicine. That's oh, from the Institute of Medicine. Yeah. So this is the highest functioning think tank in the country. And go to page three. You know, that, everything is up front here. Um, And read this paragraph. So here on page three in the summary, the U.S. health disadvantage is more pronounced among socioeconomically disadvantaged groups, but even advantaged Americans appear to fare uh, to fare worse than their counterparts in England and some other countries. That is, Americans with healthy behaviors or those who are white, insured, college educated, or in upper income groups appear to be in worse health than similar groups in comparison countries. Pretty clear. Pretty clear. We're all going down together. (laughs) We are. Um, By the way, the title Uh is the, you know, I always tell my students, craft a title that says everything. Uh Um, So the the lead editor was Stephen Wolf, whom I met when he was here in October at a conference. And I was talking about the title and how much I loved it. And he implied it was really hard to get that title to fly. Oh, really? Yeah, it wasn't. Uh You know, they they wanted to put some uh, um, long, uh, well, some vanilla title that wouldn't really say everything. So we don't have uh, good health. Hundreds of thousands of people are dying annually that shouldn't. Yeah. It's not you know, it's not like the shooting in, where was the shooting that was reported today? Uh, in Pensacola or in? Yeah, no, was, uh, six people were killed. It was on the, you know, this, oh. this is every day, so yeah. it's hard to remember the latest shootings. Yeah. We're dying from all the chronic diseases that we have. It's like we live in a society with a highly toxic, odorless, colorless, invisible gas. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. It kills us from the usual conditions, and we're totally unaware of it. So we have to create the awareness, A, that we're not that, that we're dying younger, and that the result is these structural factors, these political factors that uh, are producing this. That's going to take a huge um, effort. When it comes in this book, What to Do, uh -huh. uh, they say, number one, tell the people. Mm -hmm. Number two, look at healthier countries to see what they're doing that could be of use here. Mm -hmm. And we, we tell other countries what they need to know, but we don't learn from other countries. No, we are not good listeners. Yeah. So what do you think, um, you know, it came home to me when I was, I watched Fahrenheit 9-11, the Michael mm -hmm. Moore movie years ago when it came out. And there was uh, some professor sitting in an office with, you know, surrounded by books who said the best way to keep down democracy is to keep people poor because then they just keep working and there's no time for action. Do you, what do you think about that? So uh, Robert Sapolsky, uh, somebody I admire a lot, um, <clears throat> said that uh, after, the, after the advent of agriculture, we invented poverty. And it was because, you know, the Lord could say, produce my food and store it in my castle and be ready to go to war to defend my food. So we had the stratification of society that didn't exist in the hunter-gatherer era. And Sapolsky writes it was the best way to control people was to create poverty. So um, how do we do that today? Well, um, we have, through policies, again, political policies, produced a lot of unhoused people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Seattle has large numbers. Uh, we actually, having so many unhoused people actually benefits us. Mm -hmm. That is, we provide these services for them. Uh, you can volunteer, and it looks good on your CV. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a homeless management information system that counts. And the higher the counts, the more money you get. Mm -hmm. And finally, um, you can say to yourself, thank God I'm not homeless. It could be worse. Mm -hmm. So as long as we have the presence of the unhoused, we can be grateful and not try to rock the boat. Mm. I mean, we could end homelessness if, if we wanted to. Because yeah. they occurred, the homeless population occurred in the early 1980s as the president cut funding for low-cost housing and mental health services. So it was a conscious decision. Yeah. Could be reversed. Yeah. So what can we do, you know, as people listening? Where do we start? So I tell my students, um, do what you enjoy, because if you don't enjoy it, you won't do it for long. Mm -hmm. Do what you have skills at, mm -hmm. and do what you can do for a long time without being paid much. So what do I mean by that? Well, we need to, first of all, make aware that our health status is what it is. And you can do that in a variety of ways. You know, the, you mentioned my, the Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility. Find organizations that are championing these causes. Mm -hmm. And uh, either, what do you, you might enjoy producing graphics, you might enjoy supporting events, 
you might enjoy posting on social media. Mm -hmm. So post, so get this stuff out there. Um, I don't want to keep bringing out books, mm -hmm. but, but one of the things that needs to be done is our, the government system, the federal government system of uh, taxing and sharing the proceeds of the tax is totally broken. The lowest rate of tax combined federal, state, and local taxes is the lowest rate is 23% paid by, by the richest 400 people. Wow. The bottom 90% from 1962 to 2018 have seen their tax rates increase. Top 10% have, have had them go down, but it's the richest 400 have seen the biggest drop. That's the argument in that book. The Triumph of Injustice. In, of Injustice, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so get informed about these ideas. Uh, obviously, I'm obsessed with these ideas. And, and, <laughs> Thank God. And, and Lucky become, for us. Uh, and, and, and work on that. But a pick a cause, get informed about the cause, and work with others, form coalitions. You know, the old, again, African proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I am fortunate in having a variety of groups that I work with mm -hmm. on these issues. Uh, and I have some skills, teaching, writing, talking. Uh, I'm not very good at graphics. I'm, mm -hmm. You know, and I... When I came back from public health school, I was told back there, don't uh, don't give up your day job or it's an AR doctor <laughs> night job, because that allowed me to make enough money to fund my habit. Yeah. <laughs> it's given me the perspective that I have, um, and it's allowed me to ask other questions and try and work on those. You know, Thomas Pynchon wrote in Gravity's Rainbow, they can get you asking the wrong questions. They don't have to worry about the answers. Yeah. So do we want Medicare for all, single payer, public option? I mean, those are the wrong questions. Right. We should be talking about our health and improving. And how Countries we... can set goals for health, by the way. Australia in, nine, in 2010, when it was third in the uh, Health Olympics, mm -hmm. uh, because of an article in the Medical Journal of Australia written by some doctors with the title along the lines of, what would it take for Australia to become the healthiest country in the world to beat Japan? Uh -huh. And the government actually formed a commission to study this, and they produced a report in 2010 on Australia becoming the healthiest country in the world. Well, they weren't successful, but nevertheless, you know, it does. And, and of course, subsequent governments put that idea aside. Yeah. Uh, we don't want so. So it's a tough thing to try and focus on our health and do what's necessary to to improve it. Yeah. Thank you for listening today with Dr. Stephen Vizruchka, University of Washington professor. We've got lots of ways to continue this conversation through our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter accounts. You can also get a ton of fascinating information about Dr. Bezruchka's work from his website at the University of Washington. 
It's essentially departments.washington.edu, but I'll spell it out for you because it's all abbreviated. D-E-P-T-S dot Washington dot E-D-U backslash E-Q-H-L-T-H backslash index, I-N-D-E-X dot H-T-M. And you can find more about us at our website, centerforhealingneurology.com. Please be sure to review this and rate this podcast wherever you get your podcasts and share this with all your friends and family. It is great for conversation and for us to build our collective awareness. And feel free to spend topic requests for other podcasts to podcast at centerforhealingneurology.com. Among the various things that I've learned as I have progressed over this is the importance of understanding the effect of abuse in childhood, mm-hmm. adverse childhood experiences, ACEs. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so people that I know who are involved in clinical care at some form or other with especially chronic pain and other issues recognize how ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, underlie a lot of these issues. Mm-hmm. And um, there's some people saying, well, we should prevent ACEs. That's kind of interesting because it's like prevention in general in healthcare. Mm-hmm. It really doesn't address the core problems. It kind of sanitizes, sanitizes some solutions or addressing some things. We have the, the best thing we've got going for us, perhaps, is what are called nurse-family partnerships. Mm-hmm. In other words, for vulnerable people, mostly young pregnant women, have a nurse go into the home on a regular basis weekly mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and show that they care, and then follow the, the kids that grow mm-hmm. out of that. And they have the best track record for having kids that... Uh, grow well, do well in school, uh, don't use too many uh, substances as they get older and so on. And it was actually tested uh, by a guy called David Olds, who set up separate communities and had nurses visit in one, no visits in another, or community member visits in a third, and compared the outcomes. Mm -hmm. It takes a decade to do this. And so these are now, these are nurse family partnerships. Um, we, don't, we don't support them very much. And they're in some two-thirds of states in a patchwork fashion. Mm-hmm. Within each state, counties have to beg for money. And uh, so I just recently saw a graphic, uh, infographic about the situation in Washington State. And... Uh, Large numbers of counties just don't have any programs. So here's a program to support. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you support such a program? Well, it takes lobbying and concerted public action and an understanding of the political process. Mm-hmm. In my course that I'm that's finishing up this quarter for an executive MPH for mid career folk, uh, they have to produce an advocacy policy brief on our declining health. Many people don't understand how the political system works. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
at the federal government level. So I did a little webinar with my MIDCA, the three branches of the federal government. And, uh, <clears throat> and I'm, I'm now incorporating something much more than that in my undergraduate course, since I realized so many students don't have civics classes anymore. Yeah. As long as we're teaching to the test, we don't want to teach about that. Yes. Um, so some of the students who had, um, in the uh, executive MPH program later, communicated with me and said, and they sent me some cartoon videos of things that they were exposed to in high, in, in high school. Mm -hmm. And uh, one was this sort of animated thing saying, I'm just a bill. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, you've heard of it. Oh, yeah, that's Schoolhouse Rock. Okay, I'm yes. I'm just a bill up on Capitol Hill. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where, that's where they, that's the extent of their knowledge. Yeah. They have these, they have these uh -huh. little videos that still stick with them. I'd never seen this before. Uh-huh. It, it was pretty good. Uh-huh. You know, oh, they were very catchy. They were lovely. <laughs> okay. I remember them from elementary school in the 80s. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we've got to create awareness of how the country works. Yes. And then what is the role of, well, like Ralph Nader started this organization, Public Citizen. Mm -hmm. We need t time to be citizens and understand the process and work together. This started in the 1960s when he created Public Citizen. I mean, there are all sorts of things that we have done that are highly effective. It's just that most of them we don't we don't take seriously. For example, uh, the studies on early life. Uh, we there was the Perry Preschool Project. And there was, there was the ABC Darien project mm -hmm. uh, that looked at supporting early life and the beneficial outcomes that come from that. Mm -hmm. We did the research. Uh, other countries have adopted them. We yeah. have not. Yeah. Doesn't make sense. Do you think that there's some component in our country about our rugged individualism? We only understand ourselves when we see ourselves from another perspective. Seymour mm -hmm. uh, Martin Lipset said, a person who knows only one country knows no country. So mm -hmm. how can we see ourselves from other shores? Well, in the 1800s, a guy called Alexis de Tocqueville came here from uh, France and looked at American society. And what amazed him was how collective we were. Huh. Yeah. So. I think, I mean, yes, rugged individualism, but we used to work together. Sometimes we, the things that we think, just as you're talking about early life, the things that we think and feel when we're young, we carry into adulthood. Sometimes they may no longer serve us, or sometimes we're in a different position where we could make a different decision about how we put forward our social trajectory, um, but we're really still driven by early thoughts and feelings. Yeah, I, I couldn't have put it better. Um, so how can we influence those early thoughts and feelings? Yeah, and I think those early thoughts and feelings really is based on connection. And so institutionalize this, you know. Right. In, in England, they have a health visitor. Yes. 
they come around like the, the nurses do. I mean, that's their job. This is, as you're saying this, I'm thinking to a, an analogy that I developed some years ago of what makes a cell healthy, mm-hmm. what makes a community of cells such as an organ or a whole human being healthy, and what makes a population healthy. Mm-hmm. So we just isolate a cell with its mitochondria and everything else. What does that cell need to be healthy? Oxygen, Nutrients, uh-huh. oxygen, maybe some waste disposal. That's all it needs, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Well, we're, a, we're just a bunch of cells all stuck together. Mm-hmm. So surely that's what we need. Oxygen, glucose, and some uh, excretory system to get rid of waste. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously that's not going to work. Uh, you know, as we consume more and more glucose, we're getting bigger and bigger. Uh, you give adults 100% oxygen to breathe and they get lung disease. Babies go blind. So the best advice for a component of ourselves, a cell, may not be the best advice for the community of cells that comprise a human being. So what's the best advice for the individual human to be healthy? Uh, avoid you know, the usual do's and don'ts mm-hmm. right, that you preach. Mm-hmm. So that's what makes an individual healthy. Mm-hmm. What makes a population healthy? A bunch of individuals. Is it the, well, we saw that if we aggregated the individual cell advice to the human, that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Notice if we do what's necessary to keep the human healthy, eat right, exercise, don't smoke, wear a condom, all that stuff, has no cellular counterpart. Mm-hmm. You can't tell a cell to not smoke. You can't tell a cell to uh, wear a condom. It's not in their <laughs> domains of things that they can do. Mm-hmm. Then we take the individual human health advice and we broadcast it to the population. You have to tell the population to eat right, exercise, don't smoke, uh, see your doctor and all that stuff. Are there factors at the population level that have no individual counterparts in the same way that individual health advice has no cellular counterparts, but if you do what's necessary to keep the individual healthy, their cells are healthy as a byproduct. Does the same thing work at the population level? Namely, get all the population factors right, then what the individuals do or don't do doesn't matter. That's the best way that I can explain why the longest lived country in the world has the most smokers, men smoking among the rich countries. So in Japan, half the men smoke. Um, Used to be much higher, but had a public health campaign. And this country, about 18% of people smoke, and it's only the poor that smoke now. So what are those population factors then? Okay, so what have we said so far? Well, we've got to attend to early life. That's uh-huh. something you've got to do as a society. Uh-huh. And you, you have to care and share. That's something you do with the political economic structure of the society. Yeah. So, and there's another factor that helps explain the Japanese situation. It's not independent. But uh, do you ever see a lone Japanese tourist? No. Do you ever see a lone American tourist? Yes. There lies the difference. Yeah. They do things together. Yeah. And we don't. Yeah. So we pay the price with shorter lives, poorer health. <laughs> <laughs> and this was the thing we, we finished our hike on a few weeks ago, which was our epidemic of loneliness. 
What do we do with that? <clears throat> well, yeah, maybe I told you the United Kingdom has created a ministry of loneliness. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know how effective it is. Um, I don't have a, a ready-made answer for that right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry to say. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, I can make one up, but <laughs> basically you need to promote social connections uh, and facilitate that rather than the whole social media landscape, I think, detracts from that. Yeah. The technology that isolates us, as Shelley Turkle wrote, you know, we're alone together. Mm -hmm. And uh, how do you change that? Is well, we can regulate. You know, I mentioned the what's ours are the are the broadcast are the airwaves and the ways in which. Uh, we've given those to various media. We can regulate those in our best interests. Yeah. Suppose there's a variety of little ways to try and do that. Uh, so in January, the State of the Union address will be made. Suppose the State of the Union, which it's required from the Constitution, I believe. Mm -hmm. Suppose the State of the Union may put an amendment in the Constitution saying, so we have to compare it with other unions. How is the U.S. union doing in comparison to Japan or yeah. Slovenia? I like to bring up Slovenia because uh, if we had Slovenia's child mortality rate, which was what's achievable, 43 fewer children, give or take a few, would die every day in this country. Wow. So Slovenia shows what's achievable, not the lowest child mortality rate, but when I present that, I then say, why did we, why did I choose Slovenia besides it being healthier than the United States? Why? Yeah. Country of origin of our first lady. Oh, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. So we should take notice. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I really want to thank you for being here with us today. Oh, I'm happy to do it. It's such a joy to talk to you. It's so thought-provoking, and, you know, now I have my career. I have my. I am a nurse practitioner. I'm not going to change it. <laughs> yeah, but you can do other things, and you, and you are. I yes. Mean, look at this. Yeah. yeah, and this is definitely part of it. Good. So thank you. Um, thanks for listening, everybody, today here with Dr. Stephen Bizrichka public health renegade, emergency room physician, University of Washington professor here in Seattle. We've got lots of ways to continue this conversation through our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter accounts, speaking of social media. <laughs> um, you can find us at any of these at the Center for Healing Neurology, and you can also get more information from and about us on our website, www.centerforhealingneurology.com, or even better, come see us in person at our Seattle-based clinic. Please be sure to share this show with your friends, and we welcome your rating and reviews whenever you, wherever you get your podcasts, and feel free to send topic requests to podcast at centerforhealingneurology.com. We love that you've joined us today to discuss how to make our world medicine. We rise or fall together, and we're committed to doing this, to doing what we can to make as many of us as healthy as possible. 
And this takes all of us, including you. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. My pleasure. Acknowledges that it operates and records on indigenous Duwamish and Puget Sound Coast Salish land that is still home to the Duwamish tribe. This land is stolen in violation of the Point Elliot Treaty of 1855. We are committed to uplifting the name of these lands and community members from these nations who reside alongside us. For more information on this land, its people, or ways you can help, visit duwamishtribe.org or realrentduwamish.org.